Welcome to another episode of Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children. I'm your host, Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes, with my co-host, Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass, and our special guest co-hosts, Tanika Ganey and Shatima Mills, members of our Parent Joy Circle. Welcome, Tanika and Shatima. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank Welcome. you so much for joining us. We are always happy when our Parent Joy Circle can join the conversation. So we appreciate you both, Tanika and Shatima. Thank you so much. Okay. So in today's episode, we're honored to have Dr. Alvin Thomas, a clinically trained assistant professor of human development and family studies in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he explores positive youth development and father involvement, especially among Black families. Dr. Thomas is also the host of the Black Fatherhood podcast and serves as the lab director of the Thomas Resilient Youth Lab. Trilab. Welcome, Dr. Thomas. Yes, Thank welcome you so to much the for show. Having... We're happy to have you, Dr. Thomas. Thank you. So with that being said and welcoming all our co-hosts and our guest, Dr. Thomas, today, I am really interested in having you, Dr. Thomas, share with us your motivation and your personal journey to focus on positive youth development. I love positive youth development, truth in advertising, and father involvement, especially among Black families. And how did you go about creating the Black Fatherhood podcast? So that's Indeed. a mouthful. Thank you very much for the question. Um, so when I when I, I think of the trajectory to clinical psychology and to this work specifically around research, I I think I think I can tr- kind of trace the roots back to my uh, teaching experiences. So I was a, an elementary, middle school, high school teacher for about nine years in the Caribbean. Um, and based on the kinds of experiences that I saw and challenges that I saw my, my students dealing with, I, I knew that I wanted to study psychology. Didn't know it was going to be clinical psychology at the time, but I knew I wanted to kind of figure out what was going on and what we could do to step in to provide support and to, to engage resilience or to um, help build resilience in kids. Um, so I attended Morehouse College, did the, the psychology degree there, and eventually moved over to Michigan for the, for the um, graduate program there. Um, worked with Cleopatra Caldwell, uh, who is a pioneer in fatherhood research. I didn't know I was interested in fatherhood research then, but I knew I was interested in specifically black boys, but in black families in general, trying to figure out what were the challenges to positive development in black children? Um, what were some of the challenges, but also what were some of the things that were working well? What are some assets black families already have and are already using and how to potentially translate those uh, resources to some of the same challenges that I was seeing with my students in the Caribbean. Um, and then I met Cleopatra Caldwell, and she was doing this awesome work on fatherhood in Flint, Michigan. And I thought, that sounds cool. I I think, if anything, we've been working on this family systems work in the therapeutic space from the point of view of mothers and children. And we have a whole third of the family system unutilized. It's a a great resource. Fathers, why aren't we engaging fathers? Why aren't we supporting fathers? Why aren't we getting fathers deeply involved in some of this work? And so that's where my interest in fatherhood um, came about. And as I 
continue to research the fatherhood space, I'm realizing the significant challenges uh, that Black fathers specifically are facing um, and the significant potential benefits once Black fathers are engaged in those spaces, the benefits to the father themselves and the benefits to the mother and the child and the family system. With regard to the podcast, how I came through the podcast, I think the first the first inkling of the idea of a podcast was in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic. Um, I remember buying a little clipboard and just writing an idea on it. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to call Cleo and to talk with so many different um, experts across the country and just have a conversation about fatherhood and get a, 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 a survey of the landscape. And then that that note, that uh, clipboard sat in my basement for about two years. And then a, a pot of money emerged somewhere at my in, in my university. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome to actually go in and take take this same this same idea and flesh it out but how could this fl be fleshed out and I kind of mulled it over for a while and the idea of let's try a podcast I had never listened to a podcast before so I listened to a few and decided that the way to change to start moving the needle is not only in the research there are people who will never read my papers but how do I get the information that's in there to mothers, to fathers, to children, to policymakers, to, to to pediatricians, to medical doctors and others, uh, to to try to start moving the needle around the narrative of Black fathers. Indeed, and Sharita and I both appreciate and respect Cleo's work. I had the privilege of being in a boot camp with her, and Absolutely. she was fantastic. So I'm glad you had a chance to, to work with her. And, and we agree this idea of translating research into practice, right? Putting it into the hands of the people who need it most. And the podcast is certainly one of those spaces we can do that. So we're excited that you've done this and just um, excited to hear more. I think, you know, it's just a wonderful thing when scholars are so passionate about the Black community and Black children and this idea that you know, Black fathers are just as important as Black mothers and, and providing not mm -hmm. only the research but also the platform that speaks to our community. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And then just to add on that, so you said a lot of important things. And so disseminating the work, right? Mm -hmm. Taking it to the folks who need it. And so when we talk about this idea of this absent Black father myth, mm -hmm. which is a pervasive stereotype in American culture, mm -hmm. um, how has this stereotype impacted the mental health of Black men or their families? And why is it crucial to address and debunk this myth, not only in the literature, but also to the audiences and folks that you speak to? I'll start with the second question first. Uh, yes. I think it's necessary to debunk it because it's a lie. Straight to it. It's a lie. It was deliberately created to tarnish and to destroy Black families. Mm-hmm. Because I have found in my, both in my practice and in my research, that there are fathers in all kinds of different ethnic groups and uh, racial groups and other demographic groups who are not involved, who deliberately choose to not be involved, who abdicate their roles, but they're not spoken of in the same way. The assumption that any father who is Black is automatically uninvolved and uninterested 
and has abdicated their role and is in one way or another dysfunctional is a lie. And it's, it has historical roots. We can go all the way back to Jim Crow and beyond and into the enslavement periods to find that lie. And because it's a lie, we have to root it out, root and stem. That's Every right. single part mm-hmm. needs to be pulled out, chopped down. Okay, so and we can wrap this conversation right never... now. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> right, we can, we can uh, go ahead and roll the tape, drop the mic, <laughs> shut it down, turn off the videos. It's all done. Said from a, a black right. man to right. a black, to the community of black mothers and fathers and parents and those caregivers and providers who need to hear, right? So one of the things yep. you said, as Sharita mentioned, was not only is it in the positive youth development field, but in the clinical practice, right? Like speaking to mothers and children. Mm-hmm. And we do know that mothers often bear a large burden of the mothering, if you will, but fathers are intimately involved and should be. They're equally important. We know that the research shows that too. Both parents are equally important to the healthy development of children. So the idea of how do we make sure that they're all being cared for in these spaces where we're supporting them and Mm -hmm. really just debunking the myth. So, you know, thinking even as you said, if we Mm -hmm. predate Jim Crow, we go back to slavery in a space where families Mm -hmm. were disparaged, right? So definitely important, important. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you for that very, very strong statement. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I, I, I was meeting with a group of fathers last week and their experience, as powerful as it was, was no different, was not qualitatively different from the experiences that I've heard from other fathers who I've worked with or I've read about. So the, this was 15, 15 fathers who were attending a father a fatherhood group. And so they were coming in to, to learn about different issues and to kind of find a space to talk and to explore and to kind of find community around their role as fathers and their role specifically as black fathers. Um, and across the board, all of them at the beginning of the, the, the check-in were saying, I feel good today. This has gone really well. This, that thing has gone really well. I'm feeling good. And so I challenged them to move beyond the monolithic, I feel good, like find some very fine-tuned words, more nuanced words for exactly how you are feeling. And at the end of all of their I feel goods, they were sharing each of them on a dish, a thing that was still weighing on them. And across the board, the thing that was always weighing on them was something to do with child support, something to do with co-parenting, something to do with some kind of um, institutional interaction, whether it be medical system, legal system. But there was always something going on there. And as I kept talking with them and we had we, we engaged in this conversation, what I was hearing from the fathers, and some were able to say it a little bit more succinctly than others, was that as they're going through their entire days, there was always the psychic weight of expectations from spouses, from family members, from society, and layered on top of those sometimes positive expectations, sometimes overwhelming expectations, there was also the assumption of deficit, So, of course, he's not going to. Of course, he can't, and he doesn't know, and he shouldn't know, and he won't because of blah, blah. And so the myth 
was playing into some of these assumptions of deficits. And so fathers were finding themselves, even while they were at work doing their usual work, they were going the extra mile or trying to do the extra thing, not as a way of just providing for their family, but as a way of fighting and deflecting the assumption of deficit. So they're always fighting this deficit, always dealing with this deficit. And for a lot of fathers, they were saying that, Dr. Thomas, from what you're describing with regard to the symptoms for depression, maybe I'm depressed. And I was like, and maybe you are. Um, Dr. Thomas, maybe, maybe I do have PTSD. And I was like, and maybe you do, right? Understanding that the, the weight of the, this narrative that has been played over on black fathers, they're carrying that. And they're carrying it in their bodies. So when we see things like substance abuse, I'm not saying that every every black father you come across who has a substance abuse problem is because of this. But I'm saying that that is part of it. Because we talk about, for example, and rightfully so, the, the, the unfair portrayal of women in media that these airbrushed pictures of women and women are trying hard, some women are trying very hard to live up to this ridiculous expectation and the, 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 the perception that black mothers have to be super mom and have to be super mom at everything. That's an expectation. And some mothers are killing themselves through the effort of trying to live up to these very lofty expectations that other people are not having to live up to. And in the same way that that is leading to issues like depression and anxiety and postpartum depression, specifically for, for, for mothers who, who have um, recently given birth and other um, psychological issues, in much the same way, we're seeing a similar issue among men. The challenge for men is that there's not often the space. There's not often an outlet valve. So mm -hmm. a woman, a mother could go in and talk to us, talk, hey, sure. sis, man, you, you, if, if I could just tell you, most men don't have that space. And even, the, even if, and there's not, society doesn't allow for that space to exist. Sure, absolutely. And probably even more so for black men and black fathers specifically, right? So if we go back to your first yeah. statement about yeah. the myth and then, and then to create a space, not only to debunk the myth, but to provide support is probably likely, especially yep. for black men. Yep. Support and facilitation of those, yep. like you said, how he had to uh, kind of like police the more of the I feel good and getting to more of these issues and roots and the, the causes of them, I feel like is key. Um, on the Black Fatherhood podcast, we converse with Black authors, artists, and academics um, on various topics discussing Black fathers, um, especially now in this age where uh, lots of Black fathers of this generation are entering phases in, in kind of these like buzzbeat terms of like positive parenting, conscious parenting. Um, can you highlight key things and takeaways from these conversations that have been uh, particularly insightful or inspiring for you and your audience? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, I, I like to think of the podcast as, so 
when I when I would see uh, families in therapy, often we would have to we would try to identify free community resources that we can say, hey, check out this resource. It's free. You can use it as 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 needed. I like to think of the of the podcast as a free community resource. So a clinician can say, hey, um, I know we're we're working on how to better the relationship between you and your 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 child's um, other parent or mother. Here's a, a podcast that has a couple of episodes on co-parenting. Go listen to it and let's come back next week and let's discuss it. Here's another episode about blah, blah, blah. Go listen to it. Come back. Let's talk about it. Another way of using the podcast is the community members, fathers who are trying to find services or trying to find support can coalesce, can come together and say, hey, dude, uh, I found this podcast. Go listen to this episode. And when we play basketball the next time or when we come from the gym next time or when we're doing whatever next time, we can talk about that. Because I, I, there were some really dope points on there or some points that I didn't agree with, but I could see my, my, my own dad or I could see my, my baby's mother in that, in that discussion. You, you tell me what you think. So it's a way of um, feeding the conversation, starting the conversation and continuing it and exploring different issues. There have been some re- across the board, just really powerful conversations uh, with some extremely soul-feeding uh, tidbits. I think, for example, the most recent, um, one of the most recent episodes, for example, with um, Felonius Monk, where he's supposed to come on for, uh, for, for an interview and he's late. And of course, he's running in, trying to not be the black man who's late for something. And the story is that he was supposed to be on, but he was here in this, he was caught in this conflict with his six-year-old son and trying to negotiate a thing that he didn't want, his son is not supposed to be doing, but was, was doing at the time and trying to, trying to parent while trying to do his, the, the, the rest of his life. And so we, we lean into that story because that is the real life of fathers. That is the real life of black parents or of parents in general. So we lean into that and Thelonious Monk um, was able to work with us to use this episode as a cathartic way of talking about his own intentional parenting. And so talking about how Parenting is an intentional exercise. It's not uh, something that just happens. It's not incidental. It's intentional. Um, I think of the episode, and I mean, Felonius Monk drops some really great gems in that episode, so go listen to it. I think of the episode with Roy Wood Jr. And Roy Wood Jr., takes us down this path where we're talking about his father and grandfather and shows us the legacy that has led to who Roy Wood Jr. is today. And then he extends that legacy into his own children and what it means for his children to live outside of his shadow and talks about how he had to find himself outside of his father's shadow, but still the responsibility of his father to create that platform, that space that would allow for the Roy Wood Jr. that we know today to emerge. And so as a father, his role to create that space to allow for his son, for his children to be able to step out and find themselves outside of, outside of, um, outside of his shadow. And so I, I think mm. across the board, and okay. that, that's just two of them, the number of really 
powerful um, gems and nuggets of wisdom that fathers and 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 some in some cases daughters and mothers are also dropping uh, through the show. That's uh, it's just captivating. <laughs> what a wonderful um, descriptive yeah, of, of those episodes and how I think what I love about what you're sharing is not just the episodes as a form of therapy and outreach, but the depth of um, unpacking the black fatherhood experience, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, as you said, a graze, a superficial. So there's some intentionality in the decisions that these black men are, are are choosing as parents that we often don't get to hear, right? We don't get to hear the story of the intentionality yeah. of those black fathers who are there and digging in and figuring out how to do this thing, right? From different perspectives, right? So different strategies, different approaches. So thank you for that. I think that's incredibly important for for our parents who are listening, our fathers, as well as others to, to hear, as you've said on your podcast, that they're not alone in this parenting experience, that there are faces and people who acknowledge their contributions to the Black family, right? You contribute to the Black family. Yeah. But also to think about, you know, that translation, you know, as, as, as you've said, as a clinician to say, how do I put this in a space that uh, Black men can feel safe? safe enough to move beyond mm-hmm. the I'm good, I had a great day, and what does this mean when I come into this space with you, but then also when I leave this space, how do I take this with me to nurture not only me, but mm-hmm. my children and my partners and my and my wives or other family members as that father? Can you hear me now? I can hear you now, yes. Sorry, I was saying that... Um, I just appreciate everything that you've said. I've taken some notes. So many questions um, have come to mind, as well as um, just the thoughts of how underrepresentative um, a father's mental health is. And I mean, just the other day, the first time in 40 years, I got a chance to sit down with my dad at dinner and just ask him some questions about growing up and how did you feel as a father, Um, even preparing for this. And, you know, just to say, like, those thoughts that men aren't allowed the grace mm-hmm. that a lot of mothers are allowed because I've always seen my dad as the superhero, mm-hmm. the strong man. Like it was just always strength that embodies him. And there's a vulnerability that men um, need to access sometimes or need access to, to be able to truly work through those, those generational traumas or those burdens that they carry. So I just want to, I just appreciate everything that you're doing. And um, as we're moving along, you know, and I'm, so grateful that you said, you know, absent black fathers are a lie because it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't relate to not having a father. And they think that that's all we have. And that's why that strong black mm-hmm. woman um, term is, is coincidentally always thrown on us. But um, could you discuss some common misconceptions or stereotypes about black fatherhood that you've encountered um, through your work and how you've sought to challenge or dispel uh, some of those misconceptions about black fatherhood and men? Thank you. Thanks for that question. I think one of the the most common one, and it's so it's so common and insidious that we often don't um, recognize it, um, and it's it's it finds its basis in the perception of black as animalistic and savage. So the assumption is that when a black man and woman have a child that it's almost like animal breeding 
he impregnated her and he's going to leave because that's what animals do they go in they dump have a kid and of course they're not going to hang around they're going to go off and do their own thing Mm -hmm. and the mom takes care of the child because she breastfeeds the child and she's going to struggle and he's going to pop up in 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 a while and pop out he's not going to be present he's going to keep coming in and coming out of the of the um of the family system and that's the uh, that's the default assumption of the black family and if you really look at it it is an animalistic savage assumption it is an assumption of deficit it is an, an assumption of less than and that is the usual usual assumption that people have of black families and of black men and so one it's one getting fathers to not have to think about them not have that as the default and to find to define for themselves what their fatherhood is, I wrote a, I co co-authored an op-ed, um, I think in Salon with one of my colleagues um, in the School of Social Work, um, Tova Walsh, um, where we talked about was that the one of Tova Walsh? I can't remember. It was one of the one of the op-eds um, in the Salon where I talk about I, I tell the story of Vernon Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey's father, how she eulogizes her father and talks about how her father was instrumental in who she has become today and how he set the standard for who she is, who she's become. I also, and I use that time to also kind of compare her story with the story of Venus and Serena Williams, um, the Prince, um, Prince Richard um, do, um, documentary or biography that, that, that came out around the same time. King Richard, and yes. How, um, <laughs> King Richard. When he was, uh, when he became aware that he was about to have a child, he put together a manifesto for his children with a plan, a very intentional plan for how his children were going to go through life. Was the plan followed exactly in every, no, but he had a plan. So, he, so no matter what was happening in life with, his, with himself and his kids, he always had something to fall back on because there was some very specific determined effort that he was going to go through. And so when his children were, for example, in interviews, he had to default back, to, you're not going to talk to my child like that, right? Because that's not what, what we, have, we have planned for. My child is going to be conv- uh, uh, confident in herself is going to be able to stand in her own strength and to do that i have to be present to defend her to run to run interference in much the same way other fathers in less visible ways are doing the same thing when a father says i am going to be on my grind i don't care how it happens but my child has to have pampers my child has to have milk. My child has to be able to go to school and has to have shoes and clothes and whatnot. I, I may sleep on the streets, but my child has to have a place to sleep. That is fathers being very intentional about their experiences and about their roles. And I think often that is not the story that we hear about fathers. So I, I deliberately did not tell you what the negatives were. Instead, told you what the positives were as a way to undermine the negatives because that's not the story that we're hearing. I want to tell you the story that we are hearing, that fathers are involved. We finished, we, we completed a study in, um, in Milwaukee um, with the African-American Breastfeeding Network, 
brilliant organization. Um, and the, the study was among new and expectant black mothers and fathers. We wanted to find out what were the stories, what was the what were the experiences of black mothers and fathers, either their first time experiences or their second time experiences, through the birthing process. And across the board, we were hearing kind of what we expected to hear: fathers feeling unwelcomed, uninvolved, blah blah blah, the usual. What we expect to hear. What we also expected to hear was a challenging of the myth, and it, I, it came across in one story that I heard through one of the focus groups: a young man early 20s, talked about himself and his spouse who got pregnant at around 15, 16, so close to their senior year, like in their junior year. And they chose, they sat and said, we're pregnant, we're having a kid. You're not going to drop out of school and I'm not going to drop out of school. We're going to give you the space for you to have the kid and take care of the kid and I'm going to finish school. And then once I'm done, I'm going to go off and work these jobs to make sure that you have space and place to live for both of us and our kid while you do the, while you do the night classes. They both finished and graduated, got their GED. The dad is now in an undergrad program, I think in, in social work or something else. But they were intentional that their child would grow up knowing that their parents started something and finished it, got their education, and were not derailed that that child's birth was not a missed opportunity or mistake or something, that there was love in bringing that child together. That is intentional parenting. That is intentional parenting, and that is not what we're hearing. That is not the narrative that we're hearing of Black parents and of Black fathers specifically. I don't know if we can add too much to what you said, but I do want to um, bring in, we were um, teaching this Black Media Images and um, Stereotypes course. I hadn't taught it in a while. So it's relatively younger students in my class, uh, you know, younger generations. So I said, well, we have to take a historical lens. And so we read Jackson scripting the Black uh, masculine body, where he talks about the dehumanization of Black bodies, both starting with Black male bodies. And he also talks about Black female bodies. And to your point about that, treating Black uh, families and men as breeders, Black families and men as animals, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that because while we've been watching contemporary television, one of the more mature students said, I had no idea, right? So this idea of helping people to see the connections between longstanding frameworks for how we engage Black men, mm -hmm. Black mothers, Black families. The Black family union is very relevant mm -hmm. in our paradigms of research as well as practice and community supports that we provide, right? Because he said, you know, I watch TV and I can point this out, but I hadn't even thought about this. I didn't even know it, right? So I think sometimes you can be in a community of folks who unknow it and understand it. So this idea that this couple were one intentional in education, which is one of the things that mm -hmm. um, Black Americans at the time, former Africans, freed slaves invested in, right? They invested in jumping the room, getting married officially, mm -hmm. and opening schools, whether they were colleges or they were K-12 yep. one-room schoolhouses. So this idea that these young people were yep. holding on to both is very much connected to a more long-standing legacy that gets missed and distorted in this moment, right? So when we can have, at the click of a finger, short-term memory 
of the Black experience in America, it's very easy to think that that's the norm and that there aren't these alternative, more positive efforts and experiences and thriving and attempts to thrive that Black men have had, as well as women and children, to support community and family. So thank you again for illuminating both those contemporary experiences and providing the space to help our listeners understand that this is a historical experience that we are countering yep. in this 21st century. Yep. I, if I could, I would just also like to add that, um, like what was saying, just the in this short conversation, you've illuminated so much for me, you know, as a mom of young sons and, you know, being married, we are here all the time, you know, we are together, we are in the house and even having with my children's peers, all they know is stable, you know, two parent active household. And to them that is, you know, it's almost like they see it as easy and the norm and perfection. Mm -hmm. And we almost have to regularly illuminate to them that this is a journey of ourselves in our union. We are intentional about bettering ourselves to help you. We are two very imperfect people trying to do something that we have never seen demonstrated before, you know? And so to know that when you are providing this resource to these Black fathers, Black husbands that are you kind of, you know, literally paving their own roads if you will, and doing it in a manner of highlighting their current stories and their mm -hmm. struggles um, from a, a, a synonymous perspective is, I mean, it's, it's really, it should not be, but it's groundbreaking, you know, for them to have this, this communal space and resource, as you said. Yep, thanks. And I, 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 I... I agree with you. I think it's an indictment on our society that this seems groundbreaking. The fact that fathers, black fathers exist and have been doing this work in a certain sense of invisibility and outside of the public gaze and against the grain and against the tide, that that is... That's an indictment on our institutions, an indictment on our society, that a black father swaddling his kid or cuddling with his kid or walking the streets with his kid or taking his kid to a changing room, that that is something to be applauded and celebrated. And we need to throw him a, a parade because he is walking, oh my God, he's walking with his two kids. Isn't that awesome? No, no. It's awesome, it's yes. Normal. It's awesome, but, but it's, it's normal. normal. It's normal. Yeah. It's normal. <laughs> it's normal. Yeah, it's normal. I, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And I just want to say thank you for normalizing Black fatherhood. Absolutely. I mean, because we're having this conversation and I'm like, these things shouldn't be a surprise. This is yeah. just, this is what Black mm -hmm. fathers have always done. Right. Yep. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So just thank you for normalizing yeah. black fatherhood. 
Absolutely. Right. And giving the space to normalize those, humanize, not yeah. only normalize white fatherhood, but and humanize. humanize, right? Yeah. So the idea that you're even helping those fathers by giving that space for them to be human, to be whole and to say, this right. part of my day was great, but this is something mm -hmm. that's been on my mind, right? Because mm -hmm. all of us take what's been on our mind home with us, but yep. there are the spaces and those circles different for mothers and just women that are different from men. So, so I like that, that idea. It's just, you know, so great. And, you know, related to that, you know, celebrating, as you said, the strength mm -hmm. of black fatherhood and you've shared some positive outcomes, but are there others positive outcomes that you might want to share that you've witnessed or heard? You talked about the young couple um, that you would want to achieve for your podcast in the future. So one, one of the things I didn't, so I went into this podcast. Um, I had rolled up my sleeves and rolled up my 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 the, the my my pants and had armed myself, put on my war paint, and I was ready to fight every and anybody. And I was like, I, "This is this is unapologetically about black fathers." And you, if you tell me anything, I am ready for you. I am I'm going to take you down. And I started getting viewer feedback from people who were not black, who did not identify as black and who did not identify as fathers. So I got some, some, some responses from older black women, older white women in rural Wisconsin, in other parts of the country who were saying, this is amazing. And I know that this is not, uh, that this is about black fathers, but I see my father in this, the, absence of space for vulnerability and the restricted emotionality and the some of the challenges i see my father in this and we recently did a, a study where we asked students to listen to two podcast episodes and reflect on the podcast and so we're going to hopefully write some papers based on that um, but in that again people were saying i know this is about black fathers but I see myself in certain aspects in some of these stories. I see myself here, or I see a family member here, and I think and I, I think at the core of every discussion that we're having about black families and families and America and blah blah blah, at the core of all of it is that we are all human beings who want safety absolutely who want to be accepted yes. who want to love yes. who want to be loved and who want when we when we walk when we see that little person in our partner's arms for the first time when we look down at that crinkly mm -hmm. little face all we want to do is stop the world Right. And prevent any harm from coming to that little person. When we hear those little feet running out of the bathroom, shrieking with delight, we're thinking, oh my God, when this child grows up, he is going to be whatever. She could be whatever. Sure. And we want to do whatever we can to make sure that that child has every resource available to them to excel, to become the best version of themselves that is possible. And so that is what people are pulling from the podcast.
I the love ability that. to identify that human nature in everybody and to accept it as is. And I love that. And I'm so excited to hear because in some ways, because you bring that podcast back into the classroom to non-Black students, it is almost an intervention, right? So you're yeah. saying that beyond, in addition to the listeners who are saying, this reminds me of my father, the non-Black listeners, you have non-Black students. So it's a humanizing because exactly. for those of us who teach in the classroom, non-Black um, students who, when they, they are introduced to our theories and our research, and we do research with Black girls and Black families and Black fathers, there's always this moments of, well, all the stereotypes that we could list, the numerous mm -hmm. stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So when we do this humanizing, it's a pause. It's a reason in a moment to pause and step back from everything that you've learned. And not mm -hmm. that it's an overnight experience, but you know the podcast is primarily for those Black fathers, but mm -hmm. that it can also be used in some ways as an intervention, as moving that research into spaces that become practice and have the potential to, you know, change the dynamic, change the social dynamic. So I want to thank you again for just thinking about the podcast and the space that it is for our Black fathers, but also in the space that it is for our students who need exactly. to understand and see Black people as human. Yep. And I just want to add that I think our stories are everybody's stories as well, too. So it's important to yep. listen, but it's, it's everybody's story, right? Yep. So... Yeah. The the human story is everybody's story. Period. That's it's it. just what it is. It's everybody's yeah. story. It's the human story. Yes, indeed. I know we want to ask a couple more questions um, before as we wrap up. And thank you. I always thank our co-hosts who join us and our guests who join us for Friday night conversations. We don't instead of Friday night drinks. Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I don't know that we have virtual. We haven't gotten to the Jetsons quite yet. Right. <laughs> but we appreciate you for spending your Friday night with us. We're meeting this Friday evening. I mean, we really do just want to... Um, we have a couple more questions and then we will let you have the rest of your Fridays to yourself. Tanika? Yeah. Um, and just what all of you were saying about like the, the humanizing our story, you know, like when people see us as humans, that builds empathy. And when they, you can show us yeah. that builds empathy. And I, you know, I teach my children, like you, you get empathy, then you build allyship. Um, and that that's how we break down those walls. That's how what you were saying about these, you know, stereotypes and monoliths, like they are recognized for what they are, lies. Um, so on our podcast, Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children, we focus on empowering black children with a strong sense of self and of course their heritage. So based on your experiences, um, studies, insights, what are, if you could give us a few fundamental principles or um, practices that you believe contribute into raising joyful and resilient Black children, especially in the complexity that is today's world? Thank you for that question. The first place a child should feel safe is in their home. The first secure relationship a child should have is with their parents. If those two spaces are not safe and secure, then you should expect challenges and difficulties throughout. You, you can expect relationship dif difficulties, you can expect peer difficulties, you can expect difficulties at the school level, 
because the child does not have a safe and secure base to go back to or from which to launch. As parents, it is our responsibility. As black parents, it is definitely our responsibility to make sure that when your child leaves your house, your child knows that there is a place where they feel so comfortable being their true and authentic selves. There is a place that when they get there, even in the worst, on their worst day, that they would still be loved, that they would still be accepted, corrected, but still loved and accepted. That is the role of parents, first and foremost, to create that space. And I think I don't want to tell, tell us about what to do with the school and what to do with the peers and what to do with social media. Eh, we, we, we can get that. It's what you're doing behind closed doors. It's how you're providing space for your child to explore and to find themselves and to be able to dream, to dream big, silly dreams that even you don't understand. And that's okay. If your, if your four-year-old wants to be a dinosaur pilot fireman, go be it. Go be the best dinosaur fireman mm -hmm. pilot sure. that you can be. If that child feels comfortable being yes. able to tell you that, at 10 years old, they will tell you, yes. I want to be an artist. But if, if they feel restricted in who they can be at home, then they're uncomfortable because they don't even know who they are yet. So they're going out there and they don't know who they are and they're getting messages about who people think they should be. So they're going out there without identity, without support, without coping mechanisms. You're sending a child out. You're sending a lamb out there to the slaughter. Make sure your home is a place where your child finds support, finds love, finds acceptance, finds space to dream and to dream big, silly dreams. And for the fathers who have not, and for parents who have not had that space, create a space for you to dream your big, silly dreams. Let that little girl or that little boy in yourself dream big, silly so you, dreams. So you somewhat answered one of my last questions. We like to ask our guests... Um, so uh, we well, let me save that for last. And I have to I have to ask this and forgive me, my co-host. So you spent nine years in the Caribbean where it's nice and warm and sunny. And then you ran up to and then you went to Atlanta where it's nice and warm and sunny and ran up to the snow and over to the icy river in, in Wisconsin. Tell us how you are managing that. And then we're going to get to our favorite last question. Because I love the Hyatt <laughs> I, I I am looking outside now and I know it's 40 something degrees, 50 something degrees, and I know what's coming. I know, uh, um, what are they saying? Game of Thrones? Um, oh, win, win, the, winter the, the is winter. coming. Winter is win coming. <laughs> I, I look outside every day, I'm like, oh God, right. win, winter is coming. Winter is winter coming. Is co and it's going to be, it's going to be at least four months or five months before may when it might be warm you. enough to go outside um but I, I i think my 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 traversing from the caribbean to wisconsin has been a very circuitous one and i don't know if i would change it um there there are there are experiences that i had to go through 
to make me who I am, to solidify my resolve, to adjust my lenses in a way that might not have been adjusted had I not gone through that. They weren't always positive experiences. They weren't always pretty, beautiful experiences, but they were necessary and they've made me who I am. I feel a little bit, I feel more like a hard flint diamond kind of lens uh, that, that, that I bring to things now. And, and I appreciate it for that. Um, Wisconsin is, has been known, and it's been a while we've been at, at this point, as one of the worst places for black families to live one of the worst places for black men to live. And as I do work in Wisconsin, I think to myself, if there is a major disaster, what better place, if there is a pandemic, what better place to start the work of changing and of improving than at the epicenter? And that's why that's I'm in far. Wisconsin. I think that's... That's so powerful. I didn't expect that. Yeah, I think that's comment. fabulous that's from a professional perspective, but I still want to know about your winter wardrobe. <laughs> I think that is fabulous. We all have that road where we're like, this is really how I became the researcher I am, but I need to know how you transition from right, flip-flops right. to furry boots. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's not pretty. I think one... I think somewhere around the end of October, it just literally on a, on a dime, it just flips. It just gets colder and starts snowing. Like, okay, we're, we're here now. The nice thing about it is that it's not, it's, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not dark. That makes it's cold, difference. but not dark. So during the day, there's sunshine. You can still feel the sun on your skin, sure. but it's, it's just not warm. And we'll take a sunny cold. I, I can deal with that. Dark and dreary cold. So okay, okay. I just, I just had to ask about exactly, the weather. So exactly. thank you for the, yeah, the yeah. <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> circuitous <laughs> conversation about your research identity. We love that just as much. But right. as someone who does not like to be cold, I just had to ask. I've been to Wisconsin more than once, right. and I was like, woohoo! So, <laughs> so it, it, in it February. So having said cold. that. I, we oh, yeah. and during February, Ooh, yeah, it was something else. I know, Shane. Who we'll talk about you? it afterwards. <laughs> oh man, I said I did not know the Mississippi River froze, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yes, it was pretty cool. So I said, I've got to mm-hmm. wonder how you're surviving, and I'm from a, a you know, a four season um, part of the country, so it was just a, a very eye opening experience mm-hmm. to be that cold. Um, as we wrap, and thank you, Dr. Thomas, for sharing your time with us and really, you know, emphasizing, you know, the resilience and the humanity of Black fathers mm-hmm. and Black fatherhoods and how that relates to parenting in the Black community and Black family. We, you know, the name of our podcast is Raising Resil- Resilient and Joyful Black Children. Again, the name of our podcast is Raising yeah. Resilient and Joyful Black Children. And we've talked about that. We've heard that. We've heard you suggest that and what you've shared with us tonight. So we do love to say, what are some joy tips that you have for parents, right? So that safe space, you've also given me the green light to stop apologizing mm-hmm. that one third of my living room is my daughter's play area. <laughs> I can stop apologizing for that and try not to yell about the milk that yep. becomes a science experiment. Um, so thank you for giving me that green mm-hmm. light. But how, what kind of joy tips do you have for our fathers and those who are supporting fathers and children as we wrap? So what's the joy, you know, what's your joy tip to help people elevate our joy quotient? Cause we know we have to be resilient as black people. 
So one of the things I, I remember um, I'm gleaning from the episode of Philonius Monk, he says that he looks at his son and he is just so excited every day because there are things that he as a father and as a man has come to, well, things that he, have, he has come to almost treat as pedestrian, commonplace. But to his son, it's brand new and it's full of mystery and excitement. And so every day he gets a new, ex he gets to experience another first with his son. The first time he jumps into the pool, the first time he sleeps at a hotel, the first time he gets to order his own, his own food at a, at a restaurant, the first time he puts on his own pajamas, the first time, so many firsts. Find joy because it's all around you. I think as black people, we spend so much time, uh, and necessarily so, looking around for the danger because it's there. And it's also a traumatic response. We're, we're hyper-vigilant. We're always looking, keeping our heads on a swivel, looking for the danger around the corner. But there's also joy around the corner. Stop long enough to find the joy. When your little kid comes through the, through the door, running into the house, they might be running in with their dirty shoes. And that's what you might see. But hear the laughter the pure laughter and joy from a, from a kid who's running in home because he's a kid who is running in home because they're excited. It's a safe place for me. That's why I feel that I can run in and, and scream and laugh like that and enjoy that sound. You won't always hear it like that. Find other small bits of joy, glimmers of joy. Watch your kid laying, cuddling on you, laying on you. As a dad, you're sitting there watching football and your kid is just reposing on you, drinking a Sunny Delight or whatever, whatever drink they're drinking or eating popcorn, not even concerned about the game, but just laying on you. That's, that's joy. That's, that, that's a, a purity of joy that you can't create. You can't make that. And those, your soul and your child's soul knitting. That's what's happening at that point. You're knitting the souls and knitting the story, the narrative of your lives together. Find that space when nature and God is knitting your soul to that of your child and your partner and enjoy it. It's that quilt that will keep you warm as you get older. Very beautiful. 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 So I should also forgive my husband that my daughter's one of my daughter's first words was touchdown. <laughs> she did not get that from me. She got that from daddy. <laughs> so we, we thank you, right? So as you said, stop and finding and listening for those moments of joy with your children, with your family. We thank you for that joy quotient. How do you harness the joy? Incredibly beautiful and well said. Thank you again. We appreciate you again for spending your Friday evenings. We appreciate our our, our parenting joy circle, our, our mamas, our mommies, Tanika and Shatima for sharing with us. Um, any last thoughts or comments that you want to share with Dr. Thomas before we sign off? Thank you. I I don't know how often you hear that. Um, I feel like it could be probably said a lot more than it is. Um, but I, I firmly believe of like the work I do today 
making your difference in somebody's tomorrow. And you, sir, are making waves across all the oceans. You know, I tell my kids, it only takes one grain of sand to make a wave. And you have like a a whole tsunami. You're just, um, so thank you so much. I appreciate sir. that. Thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. Thank you just want to follow up. Like I, I just appreciate the awareness of black fatherhood that you're, you're bringing back because sometimes it feels like a lost truth and that you're, you're bringing it back to the present is what it sounds like, you know, not just in our world as black women and with, with black husbands or black partners, but you know, for that outside world. And I say that loosely, um, that it's not a lost truth. It's actually what we're living in present today. And that, um, you know, our men are not violating our spaces because, and I used mm. to say this even in my early 20s, you know, for every black man that you said is not there, I can show you two or three because that's my circle of black husbands, black mm. fathers, uncles, you know, nephews that are showing up and showing out for, you know, mm-hmm. themselves. And they're really learning who they are as men and who, you know, who that that foundation that we come from. We come from strong men that are able and capable of being fathers and husbands. So I just, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you spending time with us today and, um, you know, just bringing joy to my evening. Um, and I can go back and now I can go and laugh and hug my little toddler and, you know, dad's on a, he's on a, he's in a men's retreat right now, but you know, I'm sure I I can be able to share with him exactly what I heard and that just to have that appreciation as the man that, you know, of this home. So, you know, lastly, where can our listeners learn more about your work and um, your podcast? So we, we just opened up a, a, an Instagram page. My students said, Dr. Thomas, you have to start an Instagram page that's just for the Black Fatherhood podcast. So you could go to the Black Fatherhood podcast on Instagram. Um, you could also follow uh, the you could also follow the lab on Instagram. That's Dr. Thomas, uh, uh, Dr. A-T underscore 758. We're also on Twitter. We're also on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, if you use LinkedIn. Um, but probably the best place to find us would be um, the Black Fatherhood podcast on Instagram. As far as listening to the podcast, anywhere that you could listen to podcasts, you could listen to us. Uh, Apple, we're, I think we're now on maybe 20 different um, podcasting platforms, but we're on all of the major platforms at this point. Thank you so much. So if we cannot remember uh, AT underscore 758 <laughs> for the Instagram, then we definitely can just Google or look up the Black Fatherhood podcast and find it yeah. either on Instagram. We can find him on any of the podcast streaming services. So we're, we're grateful. And thank you, Dr. Alvin Thomas. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate you. I appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.